in three, two, one. The future of sales is radically transparent. Are you ready for it? Today, anyone buying anything relies on reviews and feedback shared by strangers and often trusts those anonymously posted experiences more than the claims made by the providers of the products or services themselves. They expect to see the full picture and find out all the pros and cons before making any purchase. And the larger the purchase, the greater the demand for transparency. As it turns out, it also leads better, retains better, grows better, and creates advocates better. To understand how transparency can become your revenue superpower, join me now for my conversation with author, speaker, and coach, Todd Capone. Well, hello, Todd. Welcome to the program. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Looking forward to it. Now, Todd, you've got some new product that's just got released, and we're going to get to that. But before we get started, before becoming a best-selling author and a world-class speaker and coach, what was your career? And I know you were an executive, a chief revenue officer. You've done a lot of that kind of work. You can talk about that, but even backing up, we're talking out of high school. What led you down the path to where you are today? Well, yeah, it really was my dad was a sales guy, a sales leader, did all of that. He worked a ton, but it was his passion. He'd come home every day with great relationships, a smile, and a fairly healthy bank account too. Like he did really, really well. And I thought in high school, college, that's cool. I don't think I want to do that. I had a face and a voice for radio. And I went into college to get into telecommunications and then quickly found oh, I got to take foreign language for that. And uh, none of it was appealing to me. And I ended up dropping into sales. In college, my first job was selling advertising for the local college newspaper. And I developed an affinity for selling and the relationships and kind of the independence of it. And I kind of went from there, got a college, three offers to go sell because nobody else coming out of college had any experience. And we'll get into this. You had said something in kind of the pre-show that's very similar. I was kind of a B, B plus sales rep forever though, right? Right, I had a couple of great years, but in 2003, I had discovered this passion for teaching, for methodology, for leadership. I took everything I owned and I bought a sales training franchise from a guy named Steve Schiffman. I don't know if that name rings oh, a bell. Oh, Steven Schiffman, absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah. I did that for a little while. Didn't do it that successfully, but- Great guy, great so content. Much. Yeah. Right, and I learned how to facilitate. I learned how to own a room. There's a lot of really good that I learned. The content for me kind of conflicted with the way that I think and a lot of what I believe. Sure. But it was really the catalyst for getting my career going. I could have gone and gotten an MBA, but right. instead I went and bought a franchise, probably cost me the same amount, but the value that I got out of that was really the catalyst for the rest of my career. Well, we're really glad you did that. And, and I know Stephen Schiffman for years. He's a prolific writer, lots of great content, lots of good principles. That's part of the history of selling and the yeah. evolution of selling. Now you've made yourself a career and I know you have a podcast where we talk about the history of selling and you go right back and it really is the oldest profession. We say it's been around. Matter of yeah. fact, I was trying to think yeah. of, well, what would be the first sales pitch 
that ever existed. Some would say it was Eve selling an apple to Adam. It was the serpent selling it to <laughs> that, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that, that's where it started and it's kind of evolved there. So let's talk about that because you've got into the history. Now, where you've been into the history for a long time, because I know when you left the revenue or you went to as an executive and working for a review company, and that's what led you to the insights, which started to create your books, which I want to get into as well. But let's talk about the history for a little bit. You've read everything under the sun on that. What led you to the history? What made that become a passion for you? It was one book. It's the Five Great Rules of Selling. It's copyright 1947. Wow. I got that book somewhere. I started reading it. And I was fascinated by, A, if you go to LinkedIn today or you go to a lot of posts, right? I mean, you can literally take paragraphs from that book and drop them in LinkedIn, pretend they're new, and people would be like, wow, that's brilliant, right? This stuff is just repeating itself. There was some crazy stuff in it, too. But I just, I've got more tabs and notes in a 1947 book than I do in a 2020 book or whatever. But it constantly was referencing old books. And so from the 30s and the 20s, and I was like, gosh, I wonder if I can find those. And so I started digging eBay, abooks.com and started building a collection. Awesome. And man, I'll tell you the writing and the theories and the processes. I mean, everything that we do today, it's been done. We step on the same proverbial rake over and over again as a profession. We keep doing the same things over and over again. History repeats itself. Yeah, exactly. So I developed a passion for not only this, but the whole predictability piece from looking at history, but just the writing and the theory and the process. So much of what we do today came from hundred to 120 years ago. And I literally, when cool people are doing cool stuff on the weekend, I'm sitting around reading a 1915 sales book. Awesome. Well, I understand that completely. And what's interesting when you look at the history, you see the mistakes that were made back then, yes. 70, 80, 90 years ago, we're still making those mistakes today. And you document those mistakes in your books where you show, look, historically speaking, we're still doing it. We still screw up the technology, for instance. And we'll, yes. we'll get into that a little bit. From the evolution of selling. So- When you've looked at it from that window of, let's go back to 1918 to say almost 100 years later, or 102 or 104 years later, how has that evolution changed? What have you, where are we today compared to where we are and where do you see it going? Well, here's the thing. So you see a lot of times people say this quote, they they say, buyers know more nowadays, Right. right? They know more. It's a threat to the sales profession. Well, that quote, buyers know more nowadays. Thomas Herbert Russell, 1911, his book, Salesmanship. So a hundred you know, that long ago, Thomas Herbert Russell was talking about how buyers know more nowadays due to the proliferation of marketing and advertising, and that there was a threat to the sales profession. Now it flourished. <laughs> Fast forward to 2015. Yeah. 2015, Forrester releases its annual state of sales report. And in it, they predicted that by 2020, so two years ago, by then, over a million B2B selling jobs would disappear. And Hundreds of thousands of college-age students that are graduating would not take sales jobs because they wouldn't be available due to the proliferation of e-commerce. The opposite happened, right? That keeps happening. Now, when we really look at it and we think about the future of selling through that lens, as it turns out, more information has not been a benefit to buyers. It's been a detriment. And as a result, as the proliferation of information and feedback and reviews and all of these pieces are out there for buyers, it's actually made it harder for them to call through because at its core, we don't buy when we're convinced, right? If we do, we're probably pissed about it a couple hours later. Right, right. We buy when we can predict. Right. And that sellers 
that are seeing that and that are adjusting and that are doing homework for the buyer, those are the ones that are benefiting. Those are the ones that are becoming a welcome addition to the buying process versus a necessary evil. And I think if we continue to see that as the lens, that our job is to help buyers predict, not to convince them, and that our job is to help do the homework for the buyer so they can achieve the outcomes. When you talk about becoming preferred, man, that's a huge opportunity to differentiate in the way that you sell. Right. And I believe that's where, when we think about technology decisions, process decisions, structure of our sales organization's decisions, if we look at it through that lens, that is going to be where the organizations flourish is when they're looking through the buyer lens recognizing buyer behavior and helping buyers to predict. Oh, well said. Lots of good insights there. I've always thought we've had a dysfunctional selling process because we have a dysfunctional buying process. And in your books, I think you call it consensual selling and consensual buying, but same idea. And what yeah. happens is it's changed and the technology's made it a little more challenging. And of course, getting consensual approvals remotely is even more dramatic. And you address that again in your books. So where do you see the skills though of the sales force? What's going to be needed? So the sales professional of the future, and what we used to tell our clients pre pandemic was, here are the trends 10 years from now, but we think that's been accelerated. We think that's been compressed and we're there. Where do you see that going from a history predicting in the future forward perspective? Where do you see things going? So there's this whole area of behavioral science around how our brain reacts to fear, how our brain reacts to confidence when we're talking to somebody else. And I believe that as a buyer, for us to be able to predict right? We need somebody to help us cull through the information and be a advocate for us, a consultant for us to help us to make those predictions. I believe that number one thing to think through this idea, I call it extreme firmographic focus in the book, but how do you become a value add to a buyer if you can't see the world through their eyes and experience the highs and lows with them and to truly be able to predict in the lens that they want to be able to predict? And so there's a couple of things we talked about. You mentioned with the consensus selling, this idea of remote and remote buying and remote selling and all of that. Part of me believes that if we go down this hybrid lens, that sales leaders need to rethink just allocating territories based on geographies and start to think about allocating territories based on verticals and then build expertise within those teams. For example, it was one of the things that helped us get through the recession of 2008, 2009, is we created that approach for our whole team. Right. We were experiencing success in aerospace and defense companies. Right. And so we just said, hey, listen, I know you could call on any discrete manufacturer, but for the next month, we're going to hire a consultant that has been in the aerospace and defense industry for 20 years. He's going to come in. We're going to do lunch and learns. He's going to tell us what these people care about what they read, how they're measured. They're even going to show us inboxes so that you can see how you stand out in the white noise of the inbox of the aerospace and defense expert. And we're also going to talk to our customers that are in our space and we're going to invite them in because they want to see us be successful. The next thing you know, that confidence builds in our reps. They become an asset to the buyers. The buyers want to talk to them, right? Because they're learning from my sales reps. Right. And the next thing you know, our pipeline's growing. And all of a sudden, we're getting Gulfstream, and we're getting Cessna, and we're getting all of these Northrop Grumman. And then we took that theory and just went out a little wider to oil and gas and heavy manufacturing, went a little wider. Next thing we grow 400% year over year, and we're selling the business to SAP. I believe that that is a core element of successful companies is when things get tough, don't cast a wider net, go tighter, yep. and 
that is actually a lesson that not only should be for downturns, but always because confidence is contagious and you become an asset to your buyer instead of there to sell them. Something. No, that's a huge insight. I've always believed smaller the niche, bigger the market. Yeah. And who makes more money, the dentist or the orthodontist? And everybody goes, well, the orthodontist. Well, who does the marketing for the orthodontist? And it's the dentist. So how do we get the market to become the marketers? Right? That's a good analogy. I like that. That's and awesome. it works great. And you can have more than one vertical. One of our verticals, oil and gas, was a big vertical for us. Once we got the major producers, we got everybody in the food chain. And we identify, and not everyone in that food chain is a good candidate, but it's like your aerospace example. There might be part suppliers, distributors, and you're going yes. through the food chain. And you become a specialist in that particular vertical. You can have more than one vertical because the nice part, we've got recession, we hear the R word looming on our horizon here in North America and even globally. That's when the pain's the highest. People don't make a move unless the pain's so great they have to or the pleasure's so good they want to. Now, if things are going good, we just won the Super Bowl. Hey, we don't need to fix this. It's not broke. Let's not touch it. So we get busier when the market gets worse and I'm sure you do too. So yeah. love that with the verticals. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Todd Capone. In your last book, you talked about this actually, I think it's chapter two of your book called Buyer Empathy. It's understanding where they come from, understanding what their issues are, what they're feeling. And you give some good stories and examples of that, sitting on an airplane, seeing a buddy sit in the middle seat and life sucks. And until you get to sit back in the middle seat and actually understand what he feels like, you've got, you talk about positioning, great book. I really like the approach and I want to get to some of the key points in that book because you talked about the authenticity and coming in and coming in with the weakness first. And that's to me, a real insight. Can you share a little bit of detail for that? And then I want to kind of move into your new book as well and talk about some well, of the key features there. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that was the trigger, right? I was the CRO of the fastest growing tech company in Chicago, right? It's called Power Reviews. Right. We helped retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on their website. And that's important in this story because like a lunatic, I quit my job and wrote a book because of a research study that we did analyzing consumer behavior when a website's acting as a salesperson. Right. So bear with me here. Here's what happened. We do this study and we're just looking at when people go to websites and they're buying something they haven't bought before, that's of medium to high consideration, meaning it's more important than a pack of gum or a roll of toilet paper. This stuff matters. What do people do? Well, there's three things they do, two of which were the reason that I quit my job and wrote a book. But the first one that didn't change my life was this idea that we all read reviews today. It's up to 99% of us when we're buying something we haven't bought before, websites acting as a salesperson will go down and read the reviews. But the two that changed my life, number one, 85% of us 
go to the negative reviews first. Right. Number one, so number we, two star. Yeah. Well, yeah. And even the fours and the threes, the fives are really pay no mind, right? All right, cool. They loved it. Got it. I want to read why people don't. And they go to that first. And the second data point that changed my life was this idea that a product, and this is across all categories, some skew higher, some skew lower, but on average, a product that has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, that's optimal for purchase conversion. Meaning a product that has negative reviews right under it actually helps it sell more than a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews. So I'm looking at this going, all right, that's when a website acting as a salesperson. Why does that happen? Why do we want the negative first? And why does imperfection and that piece sell better than perfection? But more importantly, does it apply to human to human and B to B? And I found out really, really quickly it does. That again, we as human beings, we're prediction machines. We don't buy when we're convinced. We buy when we can predict. And that's part of the way our brains are configured is we put up resistance to influence. So that if all we're hearing is five-star speak, we're, there's a filter that it's basically like a BS filter that your brain puts up between it before it gets to the limbic. And as a result, that negative disarms the limbic so that we can actually predict. What that means in kind of layman's terms is I looked at that and I was like, gosh, we've been presenting our solutions as though they're perfect. Exactly. Leaving right. it up to the buyer to go figure out how we're not, which they're going to do, which is causing us to lose control. But it's also making our five-star speak sound like BS. And as a result, what we ended up doing is let's help the buyer predict and let's lead with something that if we were truly in their shoes, seeing the world through their eyes, what are the things that customers like that maybe don't love or might be concerned about? And that could be things that, hey, a competitor does this a little bit better than us. If that's going to be an important consideration for you, let's talk about that now. Or here's a piece of functionality that we don't have that's not optimized. And if that's an important thing, let's talk. Or it could be our price, or it could be an experience that somebody else had that there's a review burning out there that they're going to find when they go, look, hey, we did have a couple of customers that struggled with. When we started doing that, what was amazing is that our cycle length sped up dramatically because we're helping the buyer predict. Our win rates went up partially because we were qualifying in faster and more effectively, but partially because we were losing the deals we we're going to lose anyway, right. fast. And then the fun kind of side note is that we made it really hard on our competitors to message against us too. But that was the impetus behind the book. And when we did that, we became Chicago's fastest growing tech company. And we were winning deals that maybe we had no, uh, like from an outsider's perspective, we were smaller. There was a bigger behemoth that we were really beaten up. And I swear it wasn't just our tech and all that. We were differentiating in the way that we sold and we were becoming preferred, right? All the the trust factor went through the roof. You actually tell a story when you were in New York and you had a a couple of extra hours and people can get into the details of the story, but the room quickly fills up with seven to nine people and they expect you to give a presentation and right away you're telling them why you might not be a good choice for this. Yeah. So I tried to think back in my world, when did we ever try that and did it work? And I actually came up with an example of that. We had a big pharma company with a drug that was 95% accepted by all the doctors. But a new pharma was coming out with a drug that was better than our client. And the company coming out with a new drug was hiring 400 salespeople to go hit the market and say, hey, we got this better product than company A, which was our client. Our client was all panicked about it. So I said, well, is the science better? And they go, yeah, it is. It's better than our product in this specific small slice of the pie. And I said, well, let's go tell it to the doctors before they get there. 
And so we actually created a campaign. Of course, we had to go through all the natural resistance to that. We went into the doctor and we said, hey, doc, a new drug is coming out on the market in the fall. It's better than ours, but only in this instance and with this case. So we pigeonholed them into a specific slice of the pie and told them all about it. It's excellent at this. The science is better. Here's the case studies. Of course, the sales reps go out and start knocking on the doors to the doctors and the doctors go, yeah, we already know that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, we, we got you. And within four months, they laid off about 300 of the 400 sales reps because there was no more need. It was already done. We kind of did the job for them. But to your point, it was an example. So I think that's huge. I'll add one thing to that. I remember when I first started telling the Calvin Klein story, where literally our competitor had released something that we didn't have, wasn't on our roadmap. And so I started with it. And everybody's, wow, Todd, that was bold. I actually don't think it's bold. And maybe I'm biased by it. But would you rather they find out now or three months from now (laughs) after you've done RFPs and flown people around? Would you rather they find out from you or from your competitor? So you lose control of the whole message. For me, I'm running a sales org and they want me to fill out an RFP. They want to have us all fly up to New York. We were in Chicago. Do I want to make those investments if that's going to be an important consideration? Right. I want to know now. I want to qualify out now. I want to control the message, right? And I want to build trust through it. And all three of those things happen. So think about that. I just had a call yesterday, inbound lead looking for training workshops and they want prospecting workshops. Guess what? Here's what they were like. Hey, we're looking for prospecting approaches. And I was like, all right, cool. Tell me what you're trying to achieve because there's 50 at least practitioners that do prospecting. And on the ranking of top 50, I'm probably 47. And so I can do it. But what I do is messaging, positioning, presenting, negotiating, leadership. Prospecting is one of those things. I'm not the best at it. I would love to refer you to somebody who does that better than me. Exactly. And in every case, it builds trust. They'll share it. Like, that would be great. Then they're like, let's dig into what you do then. You don't do that. Why? And what do you do? And almost every single time it turns into a great opportunity. And it's not using behavioral science for evil, right? It's helping right. the buyer predict and it's building trust along the way. No, I love it. Now, in your last book, The Transparency Sale, which you're selling anything or positioning anything, but you wrote all about creating empathy, going in from a transparent point of view, and you give lots of examples to that. What made you write this one on leadership? Well, yeah. So this leadership one, it's funny because I actually was thinking about writing that one first uh, Mm a long time ago. And then when I did the outline of proposal, I read it and I was like, I'm kind of bored because I hadn't really optimized it for the behavioral science and the history and all that. Here's the story of that book. When I first got promoted from, I was a sales rep. I did the training stuff back in 2003 to 2006 with Schiffman that we talked about. Right. I popped out of that to go into a tech company in the Valley, Silicon Valley, to help run sales operations for them, which at the time was processes and enablement for a VP of sales who I'd known for a while. When I got there, I had communicated to my CEO. He was asking, why are you here? And I was like, I want to learn because eventually I want to run a sales org. I think that's my jam. Right. And I want to learn under our VP of sales. Well, two years later, I learned a bunch. The CEO knew all of that. But the VP of sales left and that CEO called me and was like, hey, we think you're ready. Woo-hoo, right? My life's goal. I'm here. But here's the thing. You as a sales professional have a structure. You've got a process. You've got a framework for all you do. And it guides your behavior. It guides your processes, the way that you see the world. You can see the holes before they form. Well, as a sales leader or a revenue leader at all, within two days, I was waking up 
going, I'm a dog chasing a car down the street. And every day <laughs> I'm guided by whatever fire is going on, right. right? Whether it's a deal, a personnel issue, a pipeline review, a board meeting. I'm too much of a nerd for that. I couldn't guide my day that way. So I built a structure, a framework, and it's the five F's of building revenue capacity is where it became. But basically all your responsibilities as a leader, they fall into one of five buckets. Once you know that, and you internalize that, it becomes the basis for being proactive to see the holes before they form. I used it for all my planning, strategizing, communicating, up, down, left, right, board meetings, interviews, due diligence. And over the years, I added in all the behavioral science and then injected a bunch of sales history. And now, as we went through the great resignation and now into what's coming, the need for optimized sales leadership and revenue leadership has never been more pronounced. And as a sales history nerd, I've read a hundred sales management leadership books. I've never seen anything like that. And that was part of it too, is I didn't want to write a book that's been written. Well, that structure incorporates behavioral science research and data and to support your individual structure. So let's dive into those five Fs. At a high level, you as a revenue leader, you've got five categories of responsibilities, always ongoing and always. Number one is to the focus. So the most important asset you and your team have that they can convert to revenue is their time. And so you have a responsibility as a leader initially and ongoing to help them establish their focus, calling on the right opportunities, the right companies, right verticals, right geos, right sizes, right individuals, and the prerequisites within them. So focus is a responsibility you have as a leader to your team. Number two is to the field organization, right? To building the field to support that focus, which means the right people and the right roles with the right pay, with the right tools and the right resources. You as a leader have a responsibility to optimizing the field, the the team that takes the field every day. Right. Number three is to the fundamentals. You've got a responsibility to make sure that field team is doing the right things right consistently right? Discovery, qualification, messaging, positioning, prospecting, presenting, negotiating, the whole thing. You've got a responsibility to that. Your fourth ongoing responsibility is to the forecast, right? You've got to be able to predict the future and you got to know what KPIs and metrics that drive that so you can see the holes and be proactive. And then the fifth F, which is arguably the cheesiest, but the most important is to the fun, meaning not day parties and all that, no fun, meaning building a culture where you've optimized intrinsic inspiration, where your team wants to show up every day, stay, do their best, and become advocates for you and your organization. So that's the structure. And once internalized, literally for all of you listening, write down the five Fs. Then after we're done, you can literally do a 30, 60, 90 day plan in the next 20 minutes, right? By going, here's where we are. Here's where the holes are. Here's what we got to fix. You've always got a plan at the ready but it becomes the way that you think about things. And instead of being the dog chasing the car, the goal is you're the car with the GPS on the inside, at least. Yeah. Are they in order of importance or do they all have equal weight in your mind? Or are there some more that if we're going to focus on one or two, what should we be focused on? Well, I think all five of them are equally important. First of all, there is a specific order to the first three. If you're taking on a new role, or thinking about how your team is acting right now. Meaning to build a field organization, but not know where they're going to be focused, you're going to get the wrong people, the wrong tools. If you focus on your fundamentals before you've figured out what your focus is, then you're getting the fundamentals at least partially wrong. So I believe that those first three need to happen in order, right? Yep. Figure out what your focus is, build a field organization to support that focus. 
and then take that field organization, see where they are, and then drive the fundamentals, the things they have to get right consistently. And you talk about that in the book and the measurement as well when it comes to forecasting. I know in your past experience, you would measure the wrong things, which drive the wrong behaviors or incentivize poorly. What should we be incentivizing when it comes to a forecast or what KPIs are the most important in your mind? Well, there's something called the results formula. And it was something that as a chief revenue officer, my sales ops guy would go hide under the desk at the beginning of the month because I used to measure a lot. But there's really only four things that drive your results, right? There's four elements that lead to your results. And it's the number of qualified opportunities, how big each one is, how often you win them, so your win rate, right? and your cycle length. And all those four together drive. And so you've got to look at those holistically, not in silos, as ratios. And those are the four KPIs that if you understand the relationship between them, that, hey, all of a sudden our qualified opportunities are down. We must be in trouble. Right. Wait, not so fast. That actually happened with us. I went into a board meeting and our chairman was one of those. And he's looking at our opportunities. Like Pipel- our flow pipelines, our yeah. Funnel, yeah. And he's just, what's going on? Like, are you guys not prospecting well? And I was like, well, hold on. Look, look at the four together. We are working on a smaller number of opportunities because we're qualifying out a lot faster. Right. But our deal sizes have gone up. Our win rates have gone up and our cycle lengths have shrunk. And that's why we just grew 40% quarter over quarter, right? Take it easy. We got to look at all four of those. Quality, not quantity, right? Well, it could be if we wanted to go the opposite way, right? we could say we got a lot more opportunities in because our deal sizes have gone down and our win rates gone down and we're okay. Right. So it's looking at all four of those as relationships instead of silos and know those four, internalize them. In the book, I go into some details about how you can actually use some math there to help with your communication and your processes. But for right now, if you just know it's those four and you always know where you stand on them, that's going to help you to guide and see the holes before they form. Oh, it's important. And I really love the part where you, Simon Sinek, his famous book, Start With Why and how it related to products. And then you've taken it to a whole new level why and visualizing the buyer journey and the sales process. So again, it start with why for us and how it relates to sales and business professionals. So why change? We've got to be able to answer that question, right? And why you and why now? And I think you build that into your process and what managers can do to instill that with their sales teams as well. Go ahead and comment on that. Are you, are you sure? Because I got quite a rant about this one, brother. <laughs> but this is one of those things that yeah. I've really put my finger on in the last couple of weeks, even more detailed. Here's the deal, because we were going to talk a little bit about sales history. All the books from the early 1900s, they've got the same challenges, the leaders, the reps, the same objections, the same process, same comp, variable color. All of it looks a lot the same. The one thing that I don't find anywhere in those early 1900s books is a consternation about the ability to forecast. I'm looking at I'm like, why? And why why aren't they talking about this? They didn't have a CRM. They didn't have a Slack. They didn't have conference calls. And they didn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. Why? Here's my theory, and it goes to your, you know, the, the idea of why change, why you, why not? Right. And I'd argue the order on those with anybody if you guys want to have that conversation too. But back in the early 1900s, actually 1898, there was a guy named Elias St. Elmo Lewis that theorized something called AIDA. Now, any of you that are listening, you might associate that with Alec Baldwin playing Blake in Glen Gary, Glen Ross in 1992, in that abusive chalkboard rant that he goes on with the team. He (laughs) got AIDA right in that 1898 to the 1940s. AIDA was about recognizing buyer behavior, and it stood for 
hey, is the buyer paying attention to me, right? I've got to establish them wanting to pay attention. I then need to establish their interest in what I'm selling. So I was interested. Are they interested? The next one was desire, which was, are they now have we established a desire for what I'm selling? And then A, the last A was action. Are they ready to take action? Every sales process, every forecasting process from 1900 to at least the 1940s, use that as the basis for their process and their forecasting methodology to the point. And the book is 1924 Salesmanship by Elmer Ellsworth Ferris. He actually writes, all writers on salesmanship concede that every sale, will, uh, the mind of the customer will pass through those four different stages. Literally, there's 15 books. Right. They all go AIDA. They would stop talking about it in 1924. Everyone, how many use AIDA today? None, zero, right. zip, it's all gone. And the problem that I see in our ability to forecast, even the way that we think about the structures and processes that we put in, is that you've got, it started with Siebel in 93 and Salesforce in 99 and HubSpot, all out of the box. Every stage and every process is based on what sellers are doing. We talk about being buyer-centric, right? Of course right. we're buyer-centric, but all of our processes and the endorphins that the reps get along the journey are based on what they're doing. And they're really not systemically focused and taught to recognize buyer behavior. And yet we go, why can't we predict when a buyer will buy? We're not teaching how to recognize buyer behavior. And so maybe it's not AIDA. That's where this why change, why you, why now came from. We used it at Power Reviews and it made our forecast crazily accurate is the layer on that element into the stages so that our sellers are getting their endorphins from getting the signals from the buyer that they're proceeding along the process that a buyer goes through instead of endorphins based on, oh, I sent a proposal. Now it's 50%, right? That does nothing no. to do with your forecast, right? Yeah. And so that, again, a bit of a rant, but I believe that if we're going to tell anybody that we are buyer-centric, but all of our measures and processes are based on seller activity, you're doing it wrong and you can't question why your forecast is so inaccurate. Well, I think you have, a, you have a whole section on it. I think you call it the behavioral science of intrinsic inspiration. And it's the emotion versus the logic, right? We tend to sell logically and we look at symptoms of organizations and we always say, look, if you're experiencing a long sales cycle, if you're hearing, we've got to think about it. The problem is you. It's you. Yeah. And I don't mean you personally. It's the process. It's the problem because our processes are logically fed. It's all numbers. It's facts. It's figures where the actual decision, and I know you preach this, is emotionally based. And it's the way our brains are wired. So if you can tap into the emotional components or what's in the database, an example I would use is if I say to you, what's two plus two? You go four. That's right. And I go, what's 27 times 15? You got to do the math because one's in your database, one isn't. And it's that autopilot, right? And yeah. if you can tap into what's intrinsically built into the autopilot, so some questions that might be important. Hey, last time you did this, what went into your decision-making? How did you arrive at this last time you chose a vendor? What's your process for selecting? Find out what they did in the past, and you can tap into that and use it into the future, understanding where they're coming from. And they say you really address it from an authenticity point of view, a transparent point of view, 
and then looking at how to motivate them, which gives you predictability. And then you can go on to sales recognition, your independent security. It goes on and on. And you cover a lot of that inside your book. One area I do want to talk on, because you did talk about the emotional component and how important that is, and it really goes to trust. And you say that the higher the trust, the less homework for the buyer. So what are some of the ways we can build trust quickly? Well, that's the thing. I mean, as it turns out, transparency sells better than perfection. It keeps your customers longer. They spend more money and they become advocates for you. And then transparency also tends to lead better. And again, it goes back to this company you may have heard of, Amazon. Right. right. Amazon did pretty well by being the first in 1995 to list negative reviews right under the products that they yeah, sold brilliant. and saw that they sold more. I'm just a big believer in this and I'm not the first by any means, trust me, that every interaction, we're either building trust or we're eroding it. It's never staying the same. And do you want to start in a hole? Because once you're in a hole, those walls are pretty greasy. You're not digging out of that anytime soon. And that's why I'm such an advocate of, hey, listen, my role as a sales professional is to help you predict, right? And I know that you can't predict if all I tell you is perfection. If all I give you is five-star speak, you as a subconscious human being are going to go, perfection doesn't exist. I know it. I need to go do more work. There's a concept that I explore in the new book too, that is this idea that we as human beings, we actually bias our perspective of a reward our perception of a reward by the journey to get there. And it has to do with what you were just talking about, Michael. It was the idea of when you've done this before, what does it look like? All those processes, because we as human beings, we've got an expectation of what a journey to a reward will be. And if all of a sudden we get into it and that expectation is missed, our perception of the reward goes away. I tell a story of taking my kids to ice cream. And we get there and there's 15 people in line. Culver's. Yeah, exactly. It was Culver's. Yeah. Yeah. Here in the Midwest, their frozen custard is tears in the eyes good. We were there. We showed up. We were in lead. We got money in our pocket and we've got kids in the back seat that are drooling for it. Yet it was the kids that were like, hey, can we just go home? Right? Because their expectation was we'd get it fast. There'd be a couple of cars. There was 14 or 15 and we could see people waiting on the other side and we bailed. And to what you said, Michael, which is look in the mirror a little bit, right? Right. If the people in the Culver's are looking out the window going, what's wrong with those people? They drove all the way out here and they left a couple of idiots. Right. But no, it's you, right? And you got to look at your own processes, set proper expectations and consistently meet them. Start there, right? But it's also that understanding that if we're creating unnecessary friction in our buying journey, we are actually degrading a perception of that reward that maybe they were interested at some point. And then you wonder why we keep losing to the status quo. No, it makes sense. And that's where your vulnerability creates that authentic differentiation and then informing them, moving into that trusted advisor status. A click of the mouse in the search on Google, we can find your competitors, what the prices are. So there has to be more differentiating factors, right? You cover a lot of that in the book in a lot of detail. So we're really delighted that you wrote that book and lots of gems and you're always generous with your content. We're going to be putting all of your content information, some of the links that you have. You've got a lot of value that you offer on your website. What's the best way for people to uh, get hold of you if they want to bring this into their organization? Yeah. I mean, the point of writing the books was to get the ideas out there because I truly, I care about this profession, Right. right? And I hate that Gallup every year issues their most to least trusted professions and sales is always- We're right up there. Yeah. 
So yeah, I just, I want to put this stuff out there and toddcaponi.com. I've got my blog that I write a bunch of stuff on, a podcast, videos. It's all free. Just go do it. If you want to follow or connect with me on LinkedIn, I share a bunch of my nonsense there. Let me know where you heard me though. That's super helpful, but I'm a Google search away. And the book is The Transparency Sales Leader and just dropped, uh, available on Amazon. And they can also get The Transparency Sales. So worth getting both of those. They lead into each other. And you were generous with some of the insights that we have in the book. Easy reads, well-explained, good examples, lots of good anecdotes. So it's easy to walk away with the concepts. Now, I know too, you have a nine-year-old and 11-year-old. And I remember reading one of the stories about your wife teaches your children piano. And she uses some of the same principles that you teach, even teaching your kids piano. Just quickly touch on that just for us. Well, yeah, I mean, they hate it, right? Right. Piano is just a nightmare. But you see that the sparks of engagement happen when they are able to optimize certain elements of what drives us intrinsically, right? right? One of those things that I talk a lot about in the sales world is in sales, we start everybody over at zero. And it's like we've taken something you've built and disassembled it and then told you, hey, build it again, but build it bigger and we're going to pay you a little less for it, right? Versus them being able to see the fruits of the labor, their impact, their mission, their purpose. And that's what happens with piano, right? When they accomplish a song and they get a new song done and they've mastered it, it goes Woo-hoo. up on a list. Right. And we all celebrate it and they see it all the time and they start to see that list go down. I'm not advocating for the sales profession, getting rid of the starting over at zero part. But I want you all to think about how are we making it so that our top performers are seeing the fruits of their labor and the impact that they're making on your organization over time and using that as a beacon to keep them motivated because the starting over at zero literally incentivizes and helps your lowest performers because now they're back at the same level as your top performers who have now been brought down and you're all at zero at the starting line again. And, we're, we're looking and for evolution, not revolution, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's Ter- it. Terrific. Well, Todd, thank you so much for sharing some of the time. A hundred years from now, they'll be looking back at your books and going, look at this, look at this. So history does repeat itself. So if you do want to see what's going into the future, grab the book. It's perfect. The Transparent Sales Leader, available on Amazon. Uh, they both are and the Transparency Sale. And again, we'll have all the contact information in the show notes. Todd, thanks. Been a pleasure. This is fun, man. Thank you. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. Goodbye.